Hi everyone, I'm Frank Rock and welcome to the From the Hack podcast for week 17 of the 2017-2018 curling season. This week our main focus is the upcoming Canadian Olympic trials. Our guests include Caitlin Laws and Ryan Fry, who will both be trying to repeat as champions next week in Ottawa. Wayne and Sherry Madaw join us to preview the men's and women's events respectively. And Kevin Palmer of the Curling with Math blog joins us to go behind the numbers to see which teams have performed the best against the field they will face at the Olympic trials. You might be surprised by some of the numbers. The Next Steps with Kristen's Strifle series continues this week with two episodes. Kristen's guests are 2009 Olympic trials champion and Olympic silver medalist Cheryl Bernard and Adam Kingsbury, the coach for Team Homan. We also recap the European Championships, preview the upcoming World Qualification event, and more. But first, Canadian musician and non-curler extraordinaire Jimmy Reed plays us into the podcast. The Travelers Curling Club Championships took place in Kingston, Ontario last week. This event, reserved for club curlers from across the country, is for teams and players that have not played in a Scotties, Briar, or Grand Slam event for a minimum of four years. In the men's event, Bart Sawyer and his team from the Nanaimo Curling Club in Nanaimo, British Columbia, defeated Mark Anderson and his team from Riverview Curling Club in Brandon, Manitoba, 7-3 in the final. Meanwhile, John Murgold and his team from the Kalmar Curling Club in Alberta defeated 2015 Travelers champion Andrew Simons from the Remax Centre in St. John's, Newfoundland, 10-4 for the bronze medal. From the hack caught up with Bart Sawyer after his team's championship victory. Bart, I want to start by taking you to the finals of the Travelers Curling Club Championship. You often hear that one of the most challenging things to deal with for teams that have never played in a national final before are the nerves. Just wondering how your team felt entering the final after a solid week of play in the round robin, and how much your five-ender in the third end helped your team breathe a little easier than you might have expected in the first half of a championship final. I think going into a national final, I don't think anybody's going to say that they were, that they were calm. First, first end, I threw the first rock in, and you know I think we both were just pretty happy with that because we were just going to play a really clean end, get everybody slides underneath them, and then and then we went into the second and I threw it up. And then we got it, then we got more into a game in the second, ended up forcing him to one in the second, which was great, and then everything everything about the third just it just the guys made seven great shots. You know we threw one up, went around, made a hit and roll, made a hit and roll, chipped one out. And then um, he was literally drawing against four on his last rock, but we gave him a freeze, and unfortunately he came up short. So he left me uh, he left me a split for six, or just tap in for five, and, and we, we made the tap for five. So that was pretty exciting. But again, being a being a third end lead of five one, that's not always the best case scenario because now you're going to defend for the whole game. The biggest risk when you have a big end like that and take a healthy lead in a championship final or in any game for that matter is to start playing defensively and get out of your usual rhythm. I'm just wondering what you and the team talked about after the third end to make sure you didn't fall into that trap of playing too defensively or to change your style while trying to protect the lead of four points that you had at that point. Yeah, that was going to be my next question. So you're you're now a 5-1 to one international final, uh, and to your point, sometimes you know it sounds like a wonderful thing, and, and it's not a bad thing, but then you're playing defensively all of a sudden, and you might get out of your rhythm, and 
maybe get out of the game that you would typically want to play. So just tell me how, you know, did you guys, after that happened, did you guys have a conversation between ends to say, okay, guys, let's not, let's not switch things up too, too much and let's stick to our game plan, you know, at, at the risk of getting too defensive and, and then, you know, starting to struggle? No, I saw the three guys talking down there. I knew exactly what I wanted to do after the fact. I probably, I probably should have stayed down and, and said something, but, you know, that was a pretty exciting little moment there. So, <laughs> no, I, I knew I was going to go top four and then uh, eventually do it again and then just start feeling for the rest of the end. Eventually he's either going to leave us a double and or we just needed a half shot. And as long as we made our shots, it was going to be okay. And they actually played a really good fourth end. And he just ended up half, ended up giving me a double on my last one. But the guys made all their peels in that end, so it was just it was a well played end. And he just gave me a double on the last one and made it so we got the blank cut of about a four. So to, to actually leave the fourth end being up five one, that's a pretty good start of the eight end game. And finally, Bart, tell me about that moment at the end of the game when you first realized that you had just won a national championship. Well, I'm certainly getting goosebumps just by saying by, by you saying that again. I don't want to say it was anticlimactic. It was it was very exciting in the moment. I don't think it's ever going to sink in at the moment unless you have to make that big shot to do it. But yeah, it it certainly wasn't going to sink in until well after. I still don't think it's really sunk in. But we've definitely had some team moments um, in the last couple of days to celebrate. I think one of the biggest things where it actually sank in was Newfoundland actually won this two years ago, and we spent a lot of time with them over a couple of days. And they said when they won it two years ago that the other game actually stopped and congratulated. And after our game finished, Alberta and Alberta and Newfoundland were still in the bronze medal game, and they were still having a really good game. And they actually stopped their game and came over and shook everybody's hands for just for an amazing week. And so that was that was a really special moment. At From the Hack, we rarely get any guests call us back for the sole purpose of wanting to thank the organizers of an event. Bart Sawyer called us back following our interview and wanted to share the following message with the organizers of the Travelers in Kingston and also has a message for other club teams looking at perhaps attempting to qualify for the event. I just really like to thank Travelers in general for putting on such an amazing event. Everybody from the volunteers, our, our, our two BC ambassadors, actually three, they made our week incredible. Everyone from the umpires to the drivers to every other team that we're going to have lifelong relationships with now. I just got to say, for everybody that can possibly try for this, go for it. It is an amazing event. You get treated like royalty from the time you land to the time you leave. If you do have a chance for it, go for it. In the women's event, Stacey Fordyce and her team from the Brandon Curling Club in Manitoba defeated 2010 Travelers champion Nanette DuPont and her team from the Lethbridge Curling Club in Alberta 11-3 in the championship final. In the bronze medal game, Jody McCutcheon and her team from the High Park Curling Club in Toronto defeated Liz Garnett and her team from the Mayflower in Halifax by a score of 10-3. We caught up with Stacey Fordyce to discuss her team's championship win at the Travelers. Stacey, your team played well enough during the round robin at the Travelers Curling Club championship to win a direct spot into the semifinals. How big was that for your team after a grueling week to be able to avoid tiebreakers and the quarterfinal? It was so important, um, especially the way our round robin went. There were so many teams that were just so close and neck and neck early in the in the week. And for our team, we, we came out not as strong as we could have. We had a bit of a slow start and some close games and got a loss early in the week. So for us to finish the way we did, and especially that game against Ontario, where we were playing for anywhere from first, second, or third spot. I mean, we win that game, we get first spot and avoid a game completely. We lose that game and had 
New Brunswick won their game, we would have been third place. So, I mean, it it was a big difference for, for us, a couple of those games later on in the week, having had a loss earlier on. So it was huge for us, just avoiding avoiding a game and, and knowing that we could go right to the semifinals and give us a, the, the time, I guess, to have just that one game on Friday and one game hopefully on Saturday. So it, it was huge. There were some teams that were, that were playing three games that day from tiebreakers all the way through. So it definitely gave us the advantage for sure. Obviously, one of the more important things in a national final is to get off to a good start. Your team not only took a 2 nothing lead in the first end, but then stole two points in the second to take a 4-0 lead. How much confidence did you gain from that start, even though the game was far from finished at that point? The score was a little bit deceiving, too. I mean, we did have get the advantage to get our two in the first end, but it was completely opposite the way we tend to play our first ends. We like to have that open end and get our feet under us and get a feel for the ice. And it was there were guards everywhere. We were freezing in the first end, and I actually made a run back to get our two in the first end. We were facing a steal. And then the second end, we, we got fortunate. So, I mean, it, it, it did help a lot. But even later on in the game, they were a strong team, and they were freezing to everything. We got ourselves into a bit of trouble in the fourth end that she, that she had a shot to possibly get shot rock in there, and I'm not sure if I would have had a, a shot to get it out. So it definitely, we, we never really felt at ease until, you know, after the fifth end, especially playing in those high-pressure games and, and knowing that, you know, a four-point lead, it, it, it's a good, I'd rather have the four-point lead, but, you know, things can turn around quickly in, in curling. So we were never really completely comfortable. I mean, I remember meeting at that fourth end break feeling like, okay, we've got a four-point lead here. Let's, you know, keep things clean and not, not give this up. So yeah, it was, it, it was a great feeling, but I mean, it was still, we were not completely comfortable. In the fifth end, you managed to steal five points to take control. Take us through that end and perhaps touch on how getting that five points and taking an 11-2 lead allowed your team to breathe and to really take in the excitement of knowing you were going to win a national championship. Again, the fifth end, we went into it definitely playing defensive. They, you know, get started putting up the corner guards. We were peeling and the girls were making their shots. And I guess it got into that freeze game and we were trying to roll our shots out, and some of them were just hanging on and the side 12 foot, and we really didn't want a rock sticking around at all with them freezing to everything, but it was kind of working for us, and I really didn't see it coming at all. I mean, even just the rocks laying around, that they were in the 12 foot, the 8 foot, and I guess by the time I threw my last two shots, she was trying to bury behind guards, and it wasn't finishing, so I was just playing hits, and I was rolling away, and they were sticking in the rings, and even on our last shot, I mean, she... She had a draw against five, but it was, it was to the, you know, the full four foot. We were just hanging around in the 12 and the eight foot, and I fully expected her, her to make it. They were a tough team, and they had their draw weight. And I know I couldn't imagine throwing that rock already down four points and then throwing against five, but she just gave it the extra weight for, for the backing, and it curled past it. So even until the, the rock was stopped, it was still nothing that we ever expected. It, it just kind of snuck up on us. And, and definitely we score that five. We're up 11-2 playing the sixth end but still having to curl and make our shots. I mean, we definitely were comfortable at that point, but but trying to keep it together that, you know, that feeling of we've won this national championship, but we've got to keep it together here and play another end and make sure we make these shots because, again, anything can happen, but that nine-point lead was a lot more comfortable than the four-point one. And finally, Stacey, I think everyone dreams of winning an important championship by making the dramatic last shot to end the game, but I'm assuming you were just as happy to finish the game 11-3 after six ends to win a national championship. Unfortunately, it's hard when they throw that last rock and then come and shake your hand. 
I, you just don't want to celebrate too much because they're experiencing this disappointment and you don't want to do anything against that. But we did get a chance. They shook our hands. They congratulated us. And then we got that moment afterwards that, that we had played a, a strong game and, and finished it that way. But, but it, that's exactly it. We didn't get that moment of making that last shot to have the celebration. But we were okay with it. <laughs> It's now time for a fresh pebble, your news and notes from the world of curling. The European Championships took place last week in St. Gallen, Switzerland. In the men's event, Sweden's Team Adine won their fourth consecutive championship, defeating Scotland's Kyle Smith 10-5 in the title game. Meanwhile, the Swiss team, led by Peter de Cruz, defeated Norway 6-5 for the bronze medal, marking the first time since 2006 that Thomas Olsrud has not reached the podium at the Europeans. Finland won the B division, defeating Poland in the final, but then lost to Italy in the best 2-3 of three playoff to decide the final European team to qualify for the 2018 World Championships in Las Vegas. In the Women's Championship game, it was Scotland's Eve Muirhead defeating Sweden's Anna Hasselberg 6-3 for her second career European title. The surprising Italian, skipped by Diana Gaspari, won the bronze medal 7-6 over Switzerland's Silvana Tiranzoni, currently ranked 4th in the world. Finland won the Women's B Division final against Latvia, but then lost the best of three series to Denmark that decided the final European team to qualify for the 2018 World Championships in North Bay, Ontario in Canada. Two of Canada's most accomplished curlers will be inducted into the Canadian Curling Hall of Fame. Kathy Overton Clapham and Christine Jurgensen will be formally inducted during ceremonies at Curling Canada Championships later this curling season. Overton Clapham will be inducted during the Tim Hortons Briar in Regina in March, while Jurgensen will be inducted during the Scotties in late January in Pentington, BC. Overton Clapham will be playing third for Chelsea Carey at the 2017 Canadian Olympic Trials, has won one World Championship and five Scotties. Jurgensen has four World Championship gold medals to her name, winning the Women's World Championship in 1986, playing for her sister Marilyn Bodo, also a Hall of Famer, and then winning three World Seniors Championships in 2008, 2010, and 2013. Curling's international focus will turn to Pilsen in the Czech Republic next week when the Winter Arena Kozutka hosts the 2017 Olympic qualification event from December 5th to the 10th. This event will see women's teams from seven countries and men's teams from eight countries compete for the final two spots in both the men's and women's events at the 2018 Olympic Winter Games in Pyeongchang. The seven women's teams competing are China, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Italy, and Latvia. Among the favorites to win the two spots left for Pyeongchang are China, which are skipped by former world champion Bing Ju Wang, the only team ranked in the world top 20 at this event, the Czech Republic, skipped by Anna Kubiskova, who are playing at home and ranked 36 in the world, and Italy, skipped by Diana Gaspari, riding their surprising third-place finish at the recent European Championships. The eight men's teams involved are China, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, and Russia. Among the favorites in the men's event are China, skipped by Ryu Liu, currently ranked 18th in the world, Denmark, skipped by Rasmus Sterny, who won a silver medal at the World Championships in 2016, and the Dutch, skipped by Jaap van Dorp, currently ranked 44th in the world. We begin our Olympic trials preview with Sherry and Wayne Madaw, who joined us to discuss what it's like to compete at a trials and also to discuss the different teams that will be in Ottawa looking to win at the trials and represent Canada in Pyeongchang. We start with Sherry, whose team lost in the final of the 2013 Olympic trials to eventual gold medalist Team Jones. Sherry, you've had the opportunity to play in the Canadian Olympic trials four times, so you know as well as anyone what the lead-up to the trials is like. As we speak, none of the teams headed to Ottawa will be playing in another event before arriving at the trials. So what does the next week look like for a team that is preparing to compete in the Olympic trials? Well, I mean, leading up to any event, um, you know, daily practice for sure. 
um, you know, and some gym training, but uh, resting up because everyone knows that it's going to be um, a long, exhausting, grueling, physically and mental, mentally draining week. So, but yeah, um, I'm sure everyone's on the ice every day, um, trying to mimic, um, you know, arena ice as, as best they can in their home clubs, and then uh, getting ready. And you know, everyone's going to arrive uh, Thursday night because practice starts Friday. And uh, yeah, I mean, most of the teams there have, well, some of the teams there have been through the experience already. But yeah, it's going to be about a practice and rest and uh, getting ready. We often hear about how the Olympic trials are a different animal than any other curling event most teams will ever play in. What, if anything, can a team do to quote-unquote normalize things once you get to Ottawa, or is it simply better to embrace a moment and the fact that you finally arrived at the event you've been planning for this whole Olympic cycle? You definitely have to embrace it. I mean, you can't be in denial that it's not a big event. You just can't. Once you step into the arena and, and all the stands are, are full, there's no way that you can just expect it to be any other like a club event so you have to embrace it but you also have to stay to your routines whatever has got the team there and whatever works for the teams they have to do that but they certainly they need to embrace the environment they can't fight it um you know it is what it is but i think the teams that you know and it's hard to say you know you need to go in there you need to to be loose and i mean you're not you're going to feel the pressure um because it is what it is it's an event that only comes for every four years but i think the teams that you know embrace the crowds embrace the event take it is uh you know take it for what it is and get energy from the crowd um and just you know not fight that atmosphere um enjoy the ice enjoy the rocks um learn from it but uh and you're not gonna no team is gonna go through undefeated so it's a matter about being consistent through the week and and rebounding after loss but you do you have to embrace it in the spirit of full disclosure, I want to point out to our audience that you will be at the trials in Ottawa as the alternate for Team Tippin. So let's start with them in our preview of the Olympic trials. Team Tippin is likely the least known of the teams that will be at the trials. You've played against them a lot over the years in Ontario. So can you give us a sense of what to expect from Team Tippin? What style do they typically play? Well, they're they're a pretty aggressive team. Um, you know, they like to hit, but they like the soft game. Um, Julie is a very uh, um, strategic skip um the team has been together for a number of years and you know so even though they're not known nationally um they've done a lot of touring especially the last few years uh you know they've been to the states they've been to scotland and uh and they just came back from the slam so you know even though i i think when you when you look at the schedule and you see team tip and you're not going to notice them as much as the the jones and the holman and the sweeting and all that but but the teams that are there certainly are aware of uh, julie and her team's um experience and you know what they had a great pre-trial so I mean you can't take that away from them so I think that should get them noticed. Team McCarville has been picked by so many people as a quote-unquote dark horse favorite at this point that one could argue they are no longer dark horses. Is it fair to say that this team is built for events like the trials? They often seem to start slowly during big events or they find themselves quote-unquote in the middle of the pack halfway through a round robin but always seem to make a late charge into the playoffs. Is that the type of resiliency that could serve them well in Ottawa? Oh, definitely. Um, the teams at the trials, because it is a long, grueling week. You know, I mean, for the last trials, we went one and three, and we still managed to come through a tiebreaker. So it's one of those that, you know, even if you don't have a great start, you just you have to rebound and you have to be consistent through the week. And that's certainly what McCarville does. Um, you know, they're not a flashy, flashy team that does a, a lot of spieling. 
they pick their schedule and they, they just kind of pick the events that are close to home because they all have families and jobs. But And you don't see them in a lot of a lot of the uh, the slams either. But, you know, they've been on the Scottish stage, so they're used to playing in an arena in front of a lot of people. Um, you know, they certainly played really, really well in the pre-trials. And, yeah, and like you said, midweek, you know, they weren't, you know, slated in in the first position, but had a great uh, finish to the round robin and then did well in the playoffs. Team Flaxy have struggled somewhat during this season. Ali Flaxy told from the Hackenden interview that they have been focusing on strengthening their technique and deliveries for much of the season so that they can stay more consistent under the pressure of the trials. That being said, how easy is it for a team that has qualified in only one of their six events this season to go into the trials with the confidence required to survive their early schedule versus Scheidegger, Jones and Sweeting, arguably the three hottest teams in Canada this season? You know, if I was them, I, I think I'd be a little bit worried because they, you know, and I know they work hard at the game and I know they practice, but that's not the same as competing. And, and I know they haven't had a great year based on their records on the slams. And, you know, I think the teams that have done well at the slams, because that is against Olympic teams and on arena ice, will be going in with a lot more confidence. But, you know, it's it's about a great start. And, you know, you, you said that they have a, a really tough start, but when you look at all the teams there, there's no easy games. So, you know, everyone's got a tough start, and it's a matter of, you know, picking and choosing, and, and like I said, you know, you have to have some good games, but if you, you come off a tough loss, it's how you rebound the next one. But, you know, I'm sure Flaxy, um, you know, I, I'm i sure they wish that they would have had more success this year and going in with a little bit more confidence, but, you know, they're a team that they're grinders, um, and they've been around. They've, they've worked hard the last three years to get into a trials position and obviously, you know, have played well to get a trial spot. Now, outside of Julie Tipp and Casey Scheidegger, is the least experienced skip headed to the trials when it comes to the pressures of competing at events such as the trials, the Scotties, and the Canada Cup. Can ignorance be bliss for her and her team who have been playing well as of late, or is it difficult for a skip that has never faced this type of pressure when they are thrown into the fire at a trials? Yeah, I mean, she she's done really, really well in the slams, and that's in an arena-like setting, but it's on a... a a lower level you know you don't have the number of uh, people in the stand so I'm sure you know it's going to be one of the deer in the headlights kind of thing like everyone's going to be when they step on the arena ice for their first game but you know they seem to be um, very consistent they seem to be very level-headed um, um, very light and you know I don't see them uh, having that extra extra pressure that they put on themselves so I think going out there, they're just going to play their style of game. And they're not flashy, and I think that's why they've done well, that they, they have confidence in each other and are very supportive. So, you know, they're a team that I think because the um, there's not going to be a lot of pressure on them like Jones and Holman and Sweeting, so I would imagine they're going to be there in the end. Team Englot came within millimeters of winning the Scotties last season, but haven't hit on all cylinders yet this season. The caveat is that they have one of the more veteran skips in the field. Do you think Michelle Englot and her team can replicate what they did at the Scotties last season, considering that Michelle is the only member of her team with previous experience at the trials? You know, it's going to be really hard for them because, I, you know, after coming so so close, I mean, my goodness, it looked like they were going to win the game in the 10th end, right? They had they had the, the win set up, and Rachel made a fantastic double. But it's one of those that, you know, after coming that close, because we've been there as well, is then all of a sudden you're putting that extra pressure on yourself. And, you know, they haven't had a fantastic season, and I think that's probably why, is because coming off a tough loss like that, that they, they feel and they're, they're looking at, at that carrot at the end, and 
and you can't do that in a trial. You have to play one game, one shot at a time, and I know that's awfully cliche, but you can't look at the end result, um, you know, and I think after coming that close and thinking, oh, they could have been at the Worlds, they could have been Team Canada, but, you know, it's one of those that they're just going to have to put that behind them and uh, and come out and um, and play, play like, one shot at a time and not look at the outcome, not think of a record. Um, it's going to be one game of, game at a time. Things have been a little turbulent for Team Kerry since they won the Scotties in 2016. However, this season they've been joined by quote-unquote super sub Kathy Overton-Clapham. Do you believe that Kathy's calm veteran presence might be just what the doctor ordered for Chelsea Kerry, who has proven that she's among the best shot makers in the women's game when she is focused and in the zone? No, exactly, and and even then, you know, uh, Chelsea, her team was one of the the last ones to to make the trials, and they were kind of on the bubble and and all that, and up and down, and with with Amy retiring, but bringing Kathy O, um, you know, very very smart move. Um, Kathy's got the experience; she's one of the best uh, shooters around, especially at the vice position. So, you know that you know they're adding depth and experience. But also some calmness, you know, you're not going to see any strategic mistakes from Kathy. So if Chelsea, you know, you know, goes a little errant during an end, Kathy would be right there to set her back on track. So bringing Kathy was a really, really smart move and can only benefit uh, Team Kerry at the trials. Um, you know, Kathy O has been there, did it, done it, and uh, proven track record for sure. Um, and she does. She adds that extra, like, 25% that position as well as calmness at the T-line. Team Sweden does not get as many headlines as Team Holman and Team Jones, but their team seems to be in the mix at every big event they enter. What makes this team so effective, even though they might be a little bit under the radar, compared to Team Holman and Team Jones? You know, and they're not flashy, but, you know, they won the first slam, and they're always in the hunt at the slams and, and at the Scotties and everything else, like, you know, uh, what, a double runner-up at the Scotties. But um, they are. They're very consistent. Uh, they're not flashy. Um, you know, often, like I said, and I, I think I said that when we've previewed every team, is they're not the ones that, you know, Jones and Holman, that's the team's that the two teams that everyone is expecting to be there in the end, but they're consistent. Um, they're very supportive of each other. They're very upbeat. You know, the front end is, you know, they're giggly. They're very supportive. Um, they're the cheerleaders on the team, which, you know, takes, because Val is very quiet, and takes Val a long way, um, gives her the confidence that she needs. And, yeah, I mean, they're a team that they're just, they're there. Um, they don't do anything flashy. Um, they don't blow teams out of the water. They're just very consistent. And, uh, yeah, they're going to be there in the end as well. And, um, you know, they, they've worked very, very hard. They've juggled um, families and careers and everything else and, and been through some highs and lows. Like, you know, they, they've, they've struggled in some, some events, and then they'll come back and win the next one. So they know how to grind, grind out the wins, and that's what it's going to take in a long week. Team Jones seems to have everything going for them. They are the defending champions. They are playing extremely well going into the event, and they know what it takes to win at the trials. What does Team Jones bring to the table as far as intangibles go that makes them such a difficult team to beat in events such as the Scotties or trials? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, Team Jones, they've had an incredible year, and, and they're on such a huge run. You know, there was never, not even a letdown at all from the trials, and so they definitely have to go in as, as number one, you know, with the experience, um, how well they've all been playing. Like, all four players are, are the top at their positions every single event. 
and Jennifer makes all the cut shots. And, you know, and they play a, a type of game, too, that, you know, if they get a half shot miss from the opposition, they just pounce. You know, they take those advantages and, and they, they brutalize you. So it's one of those. And, you know, she can play conservative, but she's also very aggressive, um, which suits her style of game, but then also forces uh, mistakes from the opposition. So, yeah, going in, um, Jennifer definitely has to be the favorite. And, you know, that doesn't deter them either because I think they relish that role. Um, they like going in. They like, you know, uh, coming out and showing the confidence, which can undermine some oppositions as well because they know that they have to play their very, very best. Um, you know, it'll be important, I think, for Jones to get off to a big start. Um, they're always known as, as a closer team, but um, you know, with so few games and only uh, the top three teams making the playoff, teams are going to have to play, like, strong right from start to finish. Many curling observers have viewed this year's trials as somewhat akin to a quote-unquote coronation for Team Homan. However, the reality is that they need to play in Ottawa in front of a home crowd and generate a peak performance in a season where the results might be good for most other teams but have been ordinary for Team Homan. Now, I can appreciate that it's important for each team to get off to a good start at the trials, but could it not be argued that it's even more important for Team Homan, who could then ride the wave of excitement and support that they will get from the home crowd in Ottawa? Yeah, definitely. I, I, You know, Rachel and her team are not having a great year, but I think they're trying different things as well. I relate them very much to like a Tiger Woods who just wasn't happy to be at the top of the game. He was always trying different things. And, and when you do that and you bring different things into, you know, technique and strategy, you're not going to maintain that top level. But, you know, kudos to them for trying different things. And, you know, I'm sure that they wish they were coming in with, you know, a couple slam wins. But you can't count them out. And, yeah, it's one of those uh, being the home team. It's a double-edged sword, too. Like you said, if they don't get off to a good start, the pressure is going to mount for them. And, you know, they're one of those that I don't consider them like a a grinding team like a Jones. But, you know, once they're going to have the crowd support for sure. But, again, you know, if they don't get off to a good start, I think they're going to feel extra, extra pressure. And, um, you know, the home crowd can either be for you or against you. But you know what, there's going to be, even though it's an Ottawa uh, crowd, there's going to be like support for all the teams there. So it's the team that embraces all of that and takes that energy that will do well. Finally, Sherry, you were right there four years ago at the trials in Winnipeg, losing in the women's final to Team Jones. Media and even the teams talk about the fact that there is more pressure at the trials than in any other event they play in. Take us into that final weekend when the field is down to three playoff teams and what the pressure is like for those three teams to provide a peak performance in some of the most important games they might ever play in. Well, yeah, I mean, you're looking, like I said, you don't want to start the event with a record in mind because you don't know what it's going to take for um, to be one of the top three. And certainly you would love to be in in the first place and get a bye to to the finals. But you do. You have to take one game at a time because it's one of those because it is such a a short week and such a small uh, round robin that you do. Every win is important. And, and, you know, even like we made it through with a tiebreaker, and it's one of those that at least you put yourself in a position, and coming for the final weekend, you just want to start building on that and coming and peaking. You don't want to peak the first 
first two games that won't get you there till the end but it is and once you get to the to the final weekend it's it's something else it's it's you just but you have to build on that you have to believe and and build that confidence and yeah the pressure mounts but I think that's what these teams thrive on it's you know it's it's playing in front of the large crowd and and hearing um, the murmurs and the and the claps and the cheers and that's what we all play for and and you want that big stage you don't want to play in in an arena where there's no one there I mean, and that's just sad, but it is. Once you get there to the final weekend, you build on all that momentum and you just finish it off. Wayne Dye is a three-time world champion and one of the more recognizable personalities in the sport of curling. He joined us to preview the men's event at the trials in Ottawa. Wayne, you played in the Olympic trials four times, so you know as well as anyone what the lead-up to the trials is like. As we speak, teams are about a week away from their first games in Ottawa. What does the next week look like for a team that is preparing to compete in the Olympic trials? Well... In those five trials, I'm going to let you know that I think I have the largest losing percentage of any person to have ever played in the trial. So whatever I did, you shouldn't do that. <laughs> uh, that being said, you know what? These teams, they're, they're all, as I look across and I think about who's there, these guys are pretty much all professional curling teams. So, you know, I think they're going to stick to their routines going up to the Olympic trials, trying to peak, of course. And, you know, they're going to try and make sure the first thing is that they're comfortable with the building, comfortable with each other, and obviously they will be as they've played together forever, and all these teams have won and lost stuff along the way. But my guess is they're just going to stick to the routines, if that includes going to the gym in the morning and practicing in the afternoon and just trying to make sure they're healthy and, and everything at home is uh, is taken care of so you don't have to worry about anything home for those uh, eight or nine days you're playing the trials. But I would say that goes for both the men's and the ladies' teams, just trying to make sure Everything is taken care of, so 100% of your focus and commitment is to being the best you can be at the trials. Team Morris is seemingly following the pattern they established four seasons ago. They won the pre-trials and are hoping to go one better than 2013 when they lost the trials final. That being said, this is a team that has struggled a little this season outside of their victory in the pre-trials. Do you believe there is still enough Johnny Mo magic left to make a run at the playoffs in Ottawa? Honestly, I don't. You know what? I'm a, I'm a Johnny Moe fan. He's so entertaining and so good for the game. And uh, Jim Cotter's a good guy. And, uh, you know, I don't really, I don't know Caitlin that well or Caitlin Snyder that well. But, uh, and then Tyrell is a, is a good guy as well. But uh, I just don't see the shot stacking end after end, game after game, to, uh, to dominate or to win an event like this over a field like this. I think it's just a little too strong and uh they just uh you know they they made their way through the the pre-trials well but this is a, another level altogether team botcher played very well at the pre-trials but they are one of if not the least experienced team at the trials that being said they have been playing very well they've won three straight events including the b final at the pre-trials and will feel very little external pressure heading into the event is that enough to allow a team like this to cause some surprises at the trials they're going to cause some surprises, but, uh, again, I just don't think they have the depth to, to shot stack end after end, game after game. Their front end, I've, I've been lucky enough to play with them before, uh, good guys who can make a lot of shots, and they can they can keep up with any front end in the book. And uh, I just don't think it's it's going to be end after end that they can they can do it. The team that wins this week is, is literally going to be the team where the, the second and the third are both 90% players for the week, and the skip is is one of those ones that's going to make a couple saves that are really important. Team Leacock had to make an unexpected lineup change late last season, and they're still trying to find their groove as a team. Is it possible for a team like them to turn it around at the trials, or does the pressure of the trials make it that much more difficult? 
too much to ask. Too much depth. Too too strong. Like I said, they might trick some teams and win the games. And you know, the Myers guys, they have a you know a great pedigree. They're born and raised in curling, but uh, it's too much to ask to turn it around if you've had a tough year and, uh, and not a great start. You're just not going to get through the depth. This is not. Uh, there is no easy game in the entire week, and so they're just not going to be able to survive it. In the eyes of many, Team Epping is the most dangerous quote-unquote floater team headed into the trials. Most don't expect them to make the playoffs, but do you think the style they like to play might be enough for them to crash the playoff party, especially if John starts getting into one of those grooves where it seems like he can't miss a shot? Yeah, you know what, John likes a, you know, a certain kind of ice conditions, and if the ice conditions appeal to him there he, he will be really tough to beat but uh you know that's a team that's you know that hasn't seen a lot of this kind of experience but uh you know they can make all the shots across the boards whether or not they will for the entire week and whether or not you know you got four guys that can throw 85 for the week i'm not sure they will but uh like you said he, he'll scare a few teams and he'll win a few games that he should win just because of the way he plays Team Carruthers is one of the teams that few people mention as a favorite, but have had success in events with a similar field, specifically at last season's Canada Cup. Also, they've added Craig Savile to the mix this season as their alternate. The only player on their team with previous trials experience is Reed Carruthers. That being said, do you see them as a legitimate threat to win this event, or will their lack of experience at the trials be a little too much to overcome in a field that is so deep? No, I, actually, they are one of my dark horse picks. They're one of my teams that I think could make the playoffs, and if they make the playoffs, which means they're playing well, that means Reed's playing well, and the rest of the team will kind of follow. They know how to, to set up the big ends. The reason I'm going to pick them as, as my favorite to win is simply because I want to see somebody go to the Olympics who's never been before. So they have four guys that have never been, and uh, Craig Savile is one of my favorite people in the world. So if you can take Craig along the Olympics and uh, four guys that have never been, guys, good luck. I want to see you play in for the, the chance to represent Canada Sunday afternoon. Team McCune is one of the four teams that most people have on their list of favorites in Ottawa. This is a team that has performed well for years on the World Curling Tour, but they've had trouble closing the deal in events such as the Provincials and the Briar. Could this be the event where they get that breakthrough win on the national stage? Team McEwen, you know what? They've made the playoffs the last two years in the Briar, the final four teams. Uh, but exactly what you just said there, for some reason they just don't seem to be able to close that out in the in the really big games and uh and this is the biggest stage and the biggest environment and you know what if they do congratulations but uh, i don't see it happening team kui is a team that was built with only one real purpose in mind and that was to win the trials and olympic gold everything else along the way is just a bonus for this team as good and as experienced as they are could playing in the one event that has been their singular focus for four seasons cause them to join the list of favorites that have failed to produce at the trials in the past or do you anticipate them stepping up to the moment no, I don't think it is, and I, and I think because Mark and Ben have have been before, have won an Olympic gold medal, that's really working in their favor. Uh, you know what? I, I agree with you. The team is built to win the Olympics right from top to bottom. They have, you know, what the best sweeper that I've ever seen is Ben Hebert. They have uh, they have two players, and and this is where I said this is what's going to win the Olympic trials is the second and third of the two positions. And I know Brent can be an all star, and I know Mark Kennedy can be an all star. If it turns out they are, at the end of the week, the best two guys, that, that team's wins, hands down, because Cooey will not miss when he needs to. But if it's the other way around, where Cooey where has to be one-man gang, and, and Brent and Mark aren't performing to their best, uh, I don't see them lasting for the whole week. But uh, that's going to be the key to that team, is, is getting Brent and Mark going. And uh, like I say, I think if they are going, that team's untouchable. This Olympic cycle has been a bit of a roller coaster for Team Jacobs, the reigning Olympic champions. That being said, they always seem to be in the mix at big events like the Briar and the Trials. Do you think that their victory four years ago and the fact that they have been there, done that, will allow them to play with a little less pressure during the week than some of the other favorites? 
I don't think they're going to play with less pressure. I think for them it's all about getting a few wins early in the week and getting their intensity ramped up so that they are, you know, the usual Team Jacobs, you know, pumping fists and, and screaming and yelling and doing all that stuff that they do. And if they get that momentum going early with some uh, with some positive vibes and some, some big wins early, then they're going to be tough to beat at the end of the week. But uh, if it starts the other way from them, I think, uh, you know, it could they could easily, just as easily go the other way. But the, the key to that team is going to be their fifth man. And Pete Stesky here is a guy that, uh, you know, he can help or he can hurt. But uh, he's a good personality to have on the team, and that might be the, the catalyst they need to uh, take some focus on them so they can do curling and uh, Pete can do what he does best and maybe distract other teams. The majority of Canadian curling fans would likely point to Team Gushu as a favourite in Ottawa. They've been on a roll for the better part of a year and a half, and their skip and third are both Olympic gold medalists. What, if anything, might be able to trip up a team that has otherwise been playing fairly inspired curling since the start of last season? Well, the key to the to Team Gushu is is they have some of the best coaching, a guy who's seen everything and will keep them level. And the one thing that I see when I watch them and is they have four all-stars on the team. They have four guys that are consistent day in, day out. They're at the top of the stats. They're they're playing as good as anybody can play, and that's what it takes now to, to win at this level is you have to have the four best players at every position. And normally, day in, day out, these guys are four best players at any position. And uh, you know what? They're going to kind of run the same as Team Cooley. If, uh, if Brent and Mark get rolling, they will be uh, almost impossible to me because Brad doesn't make mistakes anymore. He's, he's learned a lot over his years of curling. And uh, when he has to draw the forefoot, he will. When he has to hit and stay against a couple, he will. But uh, if it goes the other way around and, and Brent and Mark aren't playing that well, it's going to be uh, the other side of the coin. And, uh, and you know, Gushu will survive for so long, but uh, they won't make it through the whole week. And finally, Wayne, by the time the playoffs start at the trials, the teams involved will all be playing well, and they will likely all have momentum on their side. What might be the determining factors in the playoffs at the trials when the teams will all be so closely matched? Uh, it's going to be luck. It's going to come down to luck. Whatever whatever team, so you're going to pick. I'm going to take, you know, Crothers, Gushu, and Cooey playing at the end of the week. I think uh, every playoff game, they're all going to curl somewhere between, as a team, 85 and 90%. And somebody's going to get a break, and somebody isn't. It's you know you're going to call a hit and roll that rolls half a rock too far. Uh, you might hit a flat spot in the ice and a draw that you need to be top four is going to stop top twelve. You know, pick something. But I think uh, all these guys are, are great players, and as you say, they're going to be hot by the end of the week. They're going to be rolling and playing well. And unfortunately, that's what it's going to come down to: is a good break or a bad break, and one team will have to live with it, and one team will move on. Oh, God, oh, God. Ever since the final teams qualified for the Olympic trials last month in Summerside PEI, curling observers have been discussing who the favorites might be going into the event in Ottawa. From the Hack has asked Kevin Palmer of Curling with Math to join us and discuss the Olympic trials by the numbers. Kevin, I don't do predictions on the From the Hack podcast per se, but I thought it would be interesting to chat with someone like you who could take us behind the numbers and discuss the favorites and other challengers based on their records against each other and some other trends and data that might point to some teams having a better chance in Ottawa than others. One of the things that becomes obvious when you look back at the history of the Canadian Olympic trials is that the favorites haven't done that well. I was wondering if you could take a few moments and revisit some of those results and how the favorites didn't fare as well as expected. Yeah, I mean, I mean, first off, uh, just just to be clear, Frank, I'm not going to give you predictions either. I don't like to to make predictions themselves, but like you say, I like to look at the numbers and analyze again, almost from a probability mathematics and and if you will, gambling assessment where the chances lie. But as you say, the numbers themselves haven't always reflected on the outcomes. I mean, even just if we look at 2013, you had uh, the pre-trials event where you had uh, Morris 
who had teamed up with Cotter playing against uh, Brad Gushu. And uh, uh, you might note that this is an event that, in a recent article in the Curling News, Warren Hansen suggested maybe we don't need this event. However, those two teams actually played in that final. And um, so if you think about it, 2009, when Kevin Martin won and you know, defeated Glenn Howard in the final, and uh, Stoughton uh, was the third-place team that year, in the men's in particular, that's the only year that, that we can look back on and say, well, this is when the script sort of played out as expected. Every other year had amazing turns and cycles. Uh, I think in the men's, we might attribute it to the, whenever that Olympic trials comes. Like, like, if you think about 2009, my feeling is those three teams were at their absolute peak or just even off their peak, but pretty darn close. You had the three best teams by far and away from everyone else, um, and they... Uh, they actually uh, played up to that. But if you go back to, you know, even go right back to 1997, a Mike Harris rink that uh, came out of Ontario, had never been to a briar, was known well on the cash circuit, uh, but they went out there and defeated a bunch of other teams that had the bigger names, but, you know, were they at their peak that season? You could argue they probably weren't. And uh, in terms of their, their life cycle, certainly Martin was, you know, uh, a heavy favorite, but if you look at historically now on Martin, his best teams weren't in the, in that kind of two to three year range. And then of course in the women's is another example. We saw that um, Jennifer Jones' uh, last go round was sort of the heavy favorite and had been for many of the previous ones. But in some of them, I think if we go back to previous years, you know, where she didn't even make the playoffs. So uh, with her squad, and you know, part of it just could be, you know, we think about sport and we think about how pressure can. Um, you know, weigh on people, particularly in, in sports like golf and curling, where it's a lot of uh, it's very static. People are, you know, it's not, it's not a heavy activity, right? The, the nerves can really get you when you're making those shots uh, or trying to swing that club when, when everything means so much. And we've seen it historically. When it means so much it, and, the, and the pressure and the weight uh, is on everyone's shoulders, what you expect to happen doesn't always happen. And maybe the teams don't always, uh, uh, are, aren't always capable to match their playing level for the uh, for the moment. Before we start digging too deep into the numbers, could you provide our audience with a brief overview of the data you look at when analyzing the probabilities for an event like the trials? What I started in 2009 and then did again in 2013, uh, and you can see those on my uh, blog, Curl with Math, and uh, the uh, I'll, I, I've just ran the numbers now uh, for the upcoming event, uh, should have... Uh, an article up uh, this week ahead of the event. Uh, what I try to do is I just look at a head-to-head -head battle between all of the teams that are competing in the event. Uh, I do a couple of analysis. I try to look at the uh, predicted wins based on their scoring prevalence in those games, uh, which is one way to look at it. And then I also use, uh, based on their winning percentages, I use some formulas. These are actually stolen right from Bill James. So anyone that's familiar with Bill James from uh, – the sort of the godfather of baseball uh, analytics. I use the log five method uh, as an example to uh, to do some analysis, and then uh, and the uh, Pythagorean uh, theorem, and uh, which is uh, again another Bill James um, analysis. And so these, I mean, these are not you know hedge fund manager uh, level formulas. These are pretty basic. Uh, we you know we do have limited data of what we can assess. You know, shoot, there's always the argument about shooting percentages and what does that really mean relative to the data. So there's nothing, nothing there. This is really just based on scoring, head-to-head -head competition. In terms of the men's, we have a lot of sample data. 
in the women's case, it's a little bit different. We have some teams who've played each other quite a bit, and then we have others who have very limited records against each other. So it's what we have, and it's what we can look at to at least take a, take a shot. Most observers have narrowed the men's field down to four favorites, Team Gushu, Team Jacobs, Team Cooey, and Team McCune. But you seem to think it might be more of an open competition than many believe, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what's fascinating here is I think this is the closest to call uh, in terms of predicting one of these events in the men's uh, side that maybe we've seen uh, ever. These teams are have played each other quite a bit, so we have huge sample, you know, significant sample sizes. We've got uh, a lot of these teams are really coming into their own. Uh, you know, I'd make the argument there's five teams because the Carruthers team, uh, particularly against this field, has got a lot of games and has uh, has a has a very uh, significant record. Uh, when I think about uh, just looking at um, records alone as an example, if we look at historical, so I do two things. I look at historical and I look at the 2014 the. the from the 2014-2015 season, so since the last Olympic cycle. And what's fascinating here is it kind of plays out that you've got uh, a Carruthers, a Gushu, a Jacobs, a Cooey, and a McEwen that are all over 50% against this field. But they're, but none of them historically are over 60%, which is interesting. Now, Gushu, since the last Olympic cycle, is actually up to 65% just in the last three years, three-plus years, and uh, Jacobs is right around 60 So. You've seen that they've come on a little stronger in, in those recent years, but still, no one is substantially higher. If we go back to 2009 uh, you know, when I ran these numbers, Howard and Martin were substantially high percentages against the, the field they were playing, as an example, uh, you know, in the 70s and high seven, higher 70s. So very different. One, one of the things I'm able to run on this is I, when I run these numbers, I kind of predict the number of wins. What's interesting on the men's side is, uh, depending how I look at it, whether it's historical wins, whether it's since the last cycle, whether I do a combination of the two with some weighting to try to examine it, those five teams all look to have more than four wins and somewhere between that four to five win range, which is which is really interesting. So the numbers would bear out that we could see a real logjam, but as we've seen when these events uh, have been held in the past, not often the case. Sometimes one team gets hot during that one week, and next thing you know, you have a, a Jacobs, as an example, that's undefeated through the round robin. So I think there's going to be some incredibly tough games, is what it would appear to be. And, you know, even someone like a, a Laycock and a, and a Morris, as an example, have had some success. Like Morris, as an example, I had predicted wins there just below four wins. So they're not far off either. And as we saw at the last trials, uh, you know, John's uh, and that team can get hot. And, uh, and who knows, they could... Uh, uh, build off the success they had at the pre-trials. So what you're saying, Kevin, is that there is a chance that we'll end up with a tightly bunched men's field similar to both the men's and women's events at the pre-trials. I mean, it certainly is, is potentially could happen. I think that the odds of one team just tearing into the rest of the field and, and going 8-0 is highly unlikely. Now, having said that, <laughs> as we saw last time, you know, a hot team with a hot hand can do some uh, incredible things. But, I, you know, I also look at that last trial, and I think we all had, as fans, uh, you know, a certain appeal to the great names of the game, like, like Martin, although, again, that was a decidedly different Martin team. You had, a, you had a, a Glenn Howard or a Jeff Stoughton, as an example, but really they were not really at their peak at that point, and you sort of had a mix in that last go-round where you could, you could say that there wasn't one team there or two teams that were at the peak of their careers. 
Uh, and certainly the teams with the hot hand made it to the final. Uh, I think I think this year, I don't know that a team being hot coming into this is going to have any bearing on it because a, a lot of these teams are playing at a really high level right now. Now, switching over to the women's side, most people seem to believe that the team most likely to stand at the top of the podium at the end of the trials will come from the group of Team Holman, Team Jones, or Team Sweeting, who are currently all ranked in the top five in the world. Do the numbers really give those three teams that big of an edge against the field? Yeah, well, I mean, Holman and Jones, particularly if we think about success across the span of this analysis, again, we're looking back at historical records and then um, heavily over the last uh, you know three plus seasons, they are both in the uh, uh, 64 to 65 percent winning percentage. Uh, Jones in particular has had a, a slight drop off down to about 57 percent. Um, so it's interesting to think that Jones, who I you know is the defending trials champion, if you will, has only had a 57 percent winning percentage against this entire field. So you know that might surprise some people. Now what's kind of interesting also in there is. In the case of the women's, we don't have the same sample size. So take an example, Tippin has had very few games against uh, a lot of the, uh, um, the other teams. And so I think, you know, we can look at those numbers and say, well, does that mean Jones is not as dominant? Uh, it's really, really hard to say. Part of those Jones numbers are largely reflected in the fact that they're only 5-10 and 10 against Holman in the last, uh, in the last Olympic cycle. Uh, you know, that's, that's not insignificant when we think about the small sample size for the rest of the numbers. But clearly, you know, our eye test and our knowledge of those two teams and the way they're able to play at, that, at the level they need to play at when the events matter the most, you know, I, I think if, if we're looking at this event, you know, most observers would say, well, it would be a shock for another team to, uh, to land in the, uh, in the winner's circle other than those two. Uh, you know, if we look at Sweeting, Sweeting's actually um, similar to, to Jones in terms of her record, in the, you know, since the last cycle, and um, and they're all, but they've only been over 50, just over 50 percent historically against this field, and I think if we look at, uh, you know, just even very recent play, uh, you know, I don't know that they've been dominant per se. So, you know, the other thing I think we've we've seen in the women's game is that. There's a lot of young teams coming into their own. It's going to be interesting to see how a lot of them handle the pressure of this event. And, uh, you know, that we talk a lot of times in sports about whether they're, you know, playing with house money and that they're not expected to win or, you know, teams like Home and Jones are playing with all of the uh, expectations. The other two teams in the women's event that are getting a lot of attention heading into the trials are Team McCarvel coming off their victory at the pre-trials and with their strong history in the Scotties, and Team Scheidegger, who've been playing very well and maybe entering the event feeling less pressured than the favorites. How do those two teams stack up against the field? Yeah, so McCarvel actually is 10-12 and 12 against this, uh, this field since the last Olympic cycle and 18-30 uh, and 30, uh, overall historically. So again, not a winning record, but... Certainly, they know that they can compete with everybody in this uh, in this field. Uh, the one you know challenge I think for them is Holman. They've only beat Holman once, and uh, at some point you'd have to expect that they're going to have to get through her to uh, to win this event. Uh, but you know they've they've had they've beaten Jones. They've uh, they've uh, actually got a you know fairly good record against uh, the rest of the field. So you know we would have to think that, um, you know, if they can get over that hurdle of their, uh, their Ontario rival, um, although as we know, they're now, there's now a Northern Ontario in the Scotties, they, uh, 
you know, they, they should have a shot. Now, Scheidegger's an interesting one. It, you know, surprisingly, they've got, um, you know, not a, a bad record. Again, they're another 40% team against this field historically. Uh, and even, you know, recently that holds pretty close to bear in, in uh, 35 to 36%. You know, and they've actually beat Holman four out of uh, nine, uh, nine attempts. So, and they've also beaten Jones a couple times in the last few years. So, I don't think they have any reason to believe they can't do it, but they certainly haven't been on this stage before, and it'll be interesting to see how they, uh, you know, how they uh, respond. The last team that I want to discuss specifically is Team Kerry. It's been a turbulent time for that team since they won the 2016 Scotties, but Chelsea Kerry is one of the best shot makers in the world when she gets on a roll and is confident. How has that team, Team Kerry, fared against this very tough field? Well, so Kerry is... Uh, you know, a team that actually in the last uh, Olympic cycle, so again, going back to the 2014-2015 season, uh, they've actually had quite a number of games uh, against this field, and they have 27 wins and 34 losses. And uh, now, you know, if we actually dug into those numbers, you might find that a, a lot of those wins maybe came in that one to one and a half, you know, seasons where they seem to be really uh, peaking and, and got the, the Scotties win and everything else. But, you know, they have a they have a four and five record against Jones in the last uh, several years. Uh, they're four and zero against Shy Digger. It's really Sweeting and Homing that ha- and Homan that it sort of have the most wins against them. Uh, but even there, they've managed to uh, beat Homan three times and Sweeting four times. So uh, I don't think they're going to step out on the ice and feel like they can't uh, handle any of these teams. And you know, it's it's one of those things where what you know what happens on any given day. Uh, but I think for in their case, the, the work that they had to do and the stress that they had to do to get into the qualification, I do wonder whether, you know, that was something that was uh, last season uh, trying on them and maybe it affected their play. And, you know, you always wonder going into these events, would, would the play in a free trials actually make you more ready than the fact that you, uh, you know, you didn't have that event a few weeks before. I, I don't know in this case. Like, it'll be interesting to see how they how they come out at this event. So I think it's fair to say that Team Holman and Team Jones are the clear favorites going into the trials, but that it would not be a huge shock if another team were to break through and represent Canada at the Olympics. I would suspect, too, if we actually start thinking about, you know, what, what, what gambling might look like. Um, you know, the odds on Holman and Jones, I would suspect, and, uh, you know, historically some of these online gambling sites have actually uh, have, um, uh, have uh, posted odds uh, that the, probably the odds would not be um, uh, would be very advantageous because I think I've, I would suspect that most fans think that the odds for them to win is actually higher than it actually is. Um, you know, I think most people would suspect that it's, uh, you know, a 90% chance that those two teams are in the final. And I would say it's probably quite a bit less. And finally, Kevin, it is safe to say that supporters of different teams will be watching the standings closely as the week progresses, especially the number of losses their favorite teams have. From what you have been able to observe from the numbers, is it safe to say that teams with three losses are likely to get at least a tiebreaker in Ottawa? Well, what's interesting now is we've added this extra team, which, uh, by the way, uh, meant that I had to rebuild my entire spreadsheet, but that's fine. (laughs) Uh, But with that extra team, that's one extra game, and... uh, I, I do think that it could be a logjam, and, you know, what we saw at the pre-trials was fascinating now, uh, where, you know, the potential was is that every team could have been in a tiebreaker in that, in that one pool. Now, it's hard to say because, uh, you know, all, all sorts of things can take place, but I think, if, I think even going back to the uh, 2013 women's uh, trials, uh, there was a good chance for a huge logjam. 
I, I would say the odds are probably better that, that one of either the men's or women's is going to have a lot of extra play on the weekend. Uh, that would be my uh, my guess. Kevin's Curl with Math blog can be found at curlwithmath.ca. That's curlwithmath, M-A-T-H, dot C-A. This week in the next two installments of the Next Steps with Kristen Streifel series, the 2017 Canadian Junior Champion is joined by 2009 Olympic Trials Champ and 2010 Olympic Silver Medalist Cheryl Bernard, and also by Adam Kingsbury, coach of the 2017 World Champions Team Homan. Here is a clip of Cheryl Bernard telling Kristen just how quick her life changed after winning the trials in 2009. That, yeah, that was a crazy time. I We had no idea. And I, no idea what life would be like the day we won our life completely changed and um we had never really talked about that and curling canada again jerry peckham uh, rob pratt crafts elaine Day jackson they came in and basically they were the support system for our team and we would have never made it true and that that is their job but that being said it, you know they were pretty amazing they understood not to interfere with our team as it was, the five of us with our coach, but also to give us support where we needed. So they were very careful and um, and respectful of what we'd done, uh, but they also knew we needed some help. And, you know, there was things like I had to actually forward my call to a media attache three days after we won the trials because my phone, I, it, it was, I was inundated with phone calls. And it was media, and it was friends wanting stuff, and it was, you know, distant relatives, and it was so many people all of a sudden I, I couldn't handle it anymore. And so my phone was forwarded until after the Olympics, and they basically kind of sifted through the calls that they thought I should take, personal calls, that kind of thing. We didn't understand what to say yes and no to, and I, I think that was a big, um, you know, big struggle for us. I, we thought we had to say yes to everything. And finally, we got a grip on that. Um, you know, your whereabouts testing for WADA, for drug testing, we've never been involved in that. And now we're having to tell people where we are every minute of the day and log it into a system. And and then even just doping control showing up at the front door. I remember Carrie and my husband and I having dinner one night, and doping control just knocks on the door, and we're in the middle of dinner, and they're like, hey, sorry. And so my husband takes his steak dinner and goes downstairs, and I, two hours later, go down and join him. It, it's, you know, your life, you're an amateur athlete, and you play the game because you love it, and you, you're so excited that you win, but you don't realize all the things that come with it. And so that it was a trying time personally for all of us. I know that Carolyn, uh, her daughter, kind of got into a little bit of a panic. She was young, and she felt like, you know, this was taking her mom away, and you know, work was getting stressed with Corey, and there was just so many things that we personally had to deal with, which is why I have at times thought we should um, establish our Olympic team earlier, because you think, you know, December to February is a lot of time. It went by like that. It was a flash. And so, you know, for a new team maybe that hasn't had the opportunity to play at an Olympics before, it's really incredible. Now, that being said, you've got Curling Canada, and they, again, were amazing. They they really stepped up, and we didn't even realize. I, I look back more now and realize what they did, and behind the scenes, some of the stuff that they did for us was pretty incredible, things we didn't know about. And, you know, at the time, you're a bit protective because the four of you have won with your coach, and now all these other people step in but you need them, and and they, they understand how to do it properly and respectfully, and, 
And so, you know, that I, I will give them, you're now part of a bigger team, and, and I will give them a lot of the credit. I said that to Jerry Peckham, you know, part of that medal is yours, and, and to Elaine and to Rob. So it, that's a pretty cool story and, and a neat part to, to a very stressful time. This week in our Road to Ottawa series, our guests are Caitlin Laws and Ryan Fry, who will both be looking to help their teams defend at the Olympic trials and return to the Olympics, where they both won gold medals for Canada in 2014. We start with Caitlin Laws, the third for Team Jones, who discusses what has allowed Team Jones to stay in top form for well over four years, and why she believes that her team is well prepared for what will be a very tough Olympic trials. Caitlin, your team is obviously playing well this season, having won two of the three slams and qualifying in each of your events. Now, sometimes results aren't necessarily reflective of how a team has been playing, but am I safe in assuming that the team is satisfied with your play so far this season, especially going into the trials with that victory you just had in the Boost National in the Sioux where you went undefeated? Yeah, we're overall generally happy with how things are going. Uh, every event, we keep trying to make sure that we're focusing on working on a few different things and we're not going to be fully satisfied until the trials are done and hopefully we'll be standing on top of that podium at the end but we're really happy with how things are going so far and it's been a fantastic start to the season. I want to take a quick step back and look at the current Olympic cycle for your team. You often hear of the quote-unquote championship hangover, yet your team never really missed a beat following your gold medal in Sochi. In fact, you won the Scotties the very next season. In retrospect, what was it about this team that allowed you to enjoy the distractions of a gold medal victory while still maintaining your quality of play on the ice? My favorite thing about this team is when we formed the team, we wanted to make sure that we had a strong team dynamics. And... Every year we continue to work on that, and we're friends on and off the ice. We genuinely enjoy each other's company, and we just love to play with each other. So the fact that some people wondered if we'd go for two Olympic cycles or if there'd be an Olympic hangover, those things never really crossed their mind. It's just thoroughly enjoy being on the ice and off the ice together. So we we challenge each other to try and be better, and we we try and learn from each other, and it's we're really lucky. It's, I really love the girls that I play with. You're now in your eighth season as the third for arguably one of the best women's curlers in history. You've had a front row seat for a while now. Aside from the obvious, such as her shot-making ability and the way she calls a game, can you identify one or two qualities or traits that Jennifer Jones brings to the team that might not be as obvious when watching her play on TV as it is when you are on the ice with her game in and game out? For sure. I mean, I'm so lucky to be able to learn from one of the absolute best in our sport. And... Jennifer is just a fearless leader, and she's so smart. She thinks outside of the box and uh, really is someone who is always constantly trying to find ways to get better. And to have a leader that thinks like, thinks like that is, is pretty incredible. And for someone who has done it all but still wants to try and get better, it's, it's pretty magical to watch. Four years ago, with the trials being held in Winnipeg, your team definitely had the crowd on your side. This time around, the trials are in Ottawa, where Team Homan will no doubt be the crowd favourites. Your team obviously dealt with it well four years ago, but I'm just wondering, as someone who has experienced it, what are some of the external distractions and pressures you felt as the hometown favourites that you might be able to avoid this year in Ottawa? Yeah, I don't know. I don't really think about those types of things. For us, it was, it was special to have our friends and family there, and the crowd was absolutely incredible in Winnipeg, but we feed off of the energy of, of any crowd, and whether or not they're cheering for, for us or for, for Homan or for anyone else, uh, I just I love to see the fan support for anybody, and so 
even if it's not for us, I still feed off of it. And I didn't feel like we had necessarily distractions in Winnipeg. We just felt like we had a good plan in place, and we believed in our plan, and our goal was to win those trials and to get to the Olympics. So we just kind of followed that process, and it, it evidently it ended up working out for us in Winnipeg, and looking forward to see what we can do in Ottawa. Everybody talks about how different the trials are to any other event they play during an Olympic cycle. Your team has been there and has had success at the trials. How much of an advantage do you believe your success from four years ago will be for your team in Ottawa? Well, the nice thing is to know, like, we've done, we, we've done this, and we know that we can believe in the plan that we've created because we've had success with it, and uh, the trials is different. It's fun to see I don't know, the excitement and tension that can arise from such an event because it only happens every four years. But that's what we play for. We love that butterfly feeling and the intensity of it all. So I just can't wait to get out there. After winning the trials four years ago, it would be understandable if you wanted to use the exact same approach this time around. That being said, did the lessons learned four years ago, despite the fact that you won, lead your team to any changes in your preparation for this year's trials, whether it's getting more rest, limiting media, focusing on technical rather than mental, or vice versa in the lead-up to the trials? Yeah, I mean, the difference now is we've been together for, for almost eight full years, and when the first go-around, we were just in the, the middle of our third season together, and I feel as though I've changed a lot uh, in the sense that I'm now four years older, I guess, and a little bit more mature and can be able to learn from my experiences and really just have a really good perspective on the fact that this is just a game that we play and life will go on no matter what happens. And I just really, my goal is to enjoy this process and enjoy this journey that I've been on with my team and Plans are going to be different based on the Olympic cycle year to year. You can't do the same thing that you did four years ago because teams are better. Teams are doing more and training more and playing more. So we've definitely had to change our plan going into it. So it's, it's been definitely a different four years than the last four, for sure. At an event like the trials where each of the teams often are very similar from a skill perspective, the difference is often a mental and not a physical one. Many teams work with a sports psychologist now to help them prepare to deal with big events and big moments such as the Olympic trials. When you've had success at an event like you did four years ago in Winnipeg and went on to live the Olympic experience and live the Olympic dream by winning gold in Sochi, did that change the way you prepare? mentally for the trials this year or did you stick to the formula that had been successful four years ago for you in Winnipeg? Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily putting extra emphasis on this event but extra emphasis on how we're feeling and making sure that everyone's feeling how they want to feel going into the event and into every competition. I try not to make this one event seem so different from the other competitions that we play in. The Grand Slam series are so hard right now with all the top teams in the world and so this shouldn't be that much different than than that. And it's just about how you go into it, what kind of mindset you want to have. And uh, for me, it's just I want to have fun and I want to enjoy this the moment. And uh, the Olympic trials is just really special. You've been the reigning Olympic champions now for close to four years. What has been the coolest thing that your Olympic medal has allowed you to do or experience off the ice? Oh, my goodness. The years... Uh, following the Olympics have been obviously incredible and a little bit of a whirlwind, to be honest. But to be able to present an award at the Junos and drop puck at a couple of the NHL games and throw out the opening pitch at our local baseball team's games and a few things like that, but even just being able to share our story and 
share them with everyone in Canada has been probably my favorite part about it, seeing everyone's reactions. Uh, at the end of the day, people, they're, they, they're excited to see us, but they're really excited to see the medal. <laughs> kind of has a life of its own so I love to share that and it still gives me a ton of joy to be able to do that and I think that will continue for a lifetime because you never know how it can inspire someone to want to chase their dreams as well and how cool is that to know that you can do something like that. My last question for everyone in this series has been what it would mean for them to win in Ottawa and represent Canada and Korea. You've done it before. How much would it mean for you to go back and get a chance to defend your gold medal in Pyeongchang? It would be an absolute dream come true to be able to wear that maple leaf at the Olympic Games again and just to know everything that our team has been through, uh, kind of the ups and downs, the roller coaster rides that we've been on, but uh, it would be pretty special to be able to experience that again with these girls. Um, they work so hard, and I will definitely want to do everything I can to try and make sure that we get back, but it's an incredible honor to represent your country, and there's no better feeling in sport to be able to stand on top of the podium and belt out your national anthem. Uh, that's a moment I'll never forget, and I hope that we get to experience that again. Our final guest this week is Ryan Fry, the third for Team Jacobs. Ryan discusses the ups and downs of the current Olympic cycle for Team Jacobs and about how everything their team has worked on over the past several seasons has been geared towards preparing for and peaking at the Olympic trials in an effort to repeat. Ryan, a quick look at your team's results this season points to a team that is playing relatively well, but results aren't always reflective of how a team is playing. So I was wondering how you would characterize your season so far. Um, our season is a build-up. There's no, there's the results of the past for the last four or five events that we played in mean absolutely nothing. We've geared up for to be able to play our best in December, and that's um, what we're hoping. You know, all the strategicness we put into it and the amount of training and you know dry land and on ice is going to pay off and it's going to be in December so hopefully if, if we're standing on the podium on that Sunday of the 10th then we did a good job if not we, we may have left a couple of things that we should have done better. We often hear people in different sports talking about the quote-unquote championship hangover after winning a major title such as the Olympics mostly because there are so many distractions and demands on your time. As much fun as being an Olympic champion was for everyone on your team in retrospect did it have a negative impact on your performance on the ice? Yeah it's hard to say we lost the final the Briar the year after um, probably should have won it we lost the Simmons um, you know, on a couple of strategic errors on our own part and, you know, a couple of sloppy misses. But uh, we lost the final the Briar that year. I think the next year we went undefeated in the Briar. So we, we've been, we've played well in the, in the stuff that's, you know, the major events. But as far as being consistent, um, you know, we struggled not the first year. The first year was probably one of our best years in, the, in this, in this uh, set of the quadrennial. It was probably one of our best years as a team as far as consistency goes. The second year, we had a little bit of a letdown. Um, you know, that could be attributed to me moving, families being started, houses being built. There's a lot of things that, uh, you know, have changed in the course of four years. So um, life gets in the way every once in a while. And, you know, it's a, it's, a welcomed, it's a welcome distraction from curling because we've put so much into it over the course of our lives that, you know, you need a little bit of downtown, their downtime, especially, um, you know, after major success. So, like I said, over, plan over four years to try and get us to the Olympics. And, um, you know, being, you know, on the cusp of it now, we're very excited to see if the work that we put in and the plan that we made is going to harbor success. 
Last season, your team really seemed to gain a lot of confidence, winning two slams, losing in two other slam finals, and making the playoffs at the Briar. How important was it to have that solid of a season in the lead-up to the Olympic season, as it were? Yeah, we've, we've made, you know, we've made a conscious effort as a team to try and, you know, give everything we've got to every game that we have. Now, obviously, that's a pipe dream because no team in the world is able to do that, uh, you know, consistently game in and game out. But that's been the focus of our team is to, you know, bring the best of our abilities to each and every game. So we, we've been practicing trying to be at our best. Last year, you saw a little bit of it. We started playing very well you know, with a little bit of a letdown at the Briar. Um, we played we played pretty consistently leading into this season. Um, and so far this season, minus a little bit of a hiccup uh, last weekend. So we're we're as positive and, you know, confident going into, you know, the, the Olympic trials as we can possibly be. We've we've put our, we've set ourselves up, we've played well, we've trained as hard as we can. So like I said, there's only there's only so many things you can control in the sport of curling, and I believe that our team's done everything we can to control those things. Everybody talks about how different the trials are to any other event they play during an Olympic cycle. Your team has been there and has had success at the trials. How much of an advantage do you believe your success from four years ago will be once you arrive in Ottawa? Absolutely zero. I don't think it has any bearing from one year to the other. Um, Playing in the Olympic trials, playing in the Briar, um, playing in the Olympics, Worlds, all those things are major, major events. Now, being able to comp- uh, compete and peak as a team um, for those events is the work that you do off the ice, not on the ice. So we've we've been a team that's been able to have you know relatively good success in major championships. That being said, we've only been able to win two out of the bunch that we've played together as a team. So we've made some slight changes, um, different ways of practicing, different ways of training, and we're hoping that's going to, you know, bring the success that we want in a major event like the trials. But to go into it and put the trials up on a pedestal, more so than the Briar or the Worlds or, you know, the Grand Slam events, it, it's, it makes it more easy for you to get caught up in the whole, you know, grandeur of the event. And our team is very focused on just getting ourselves as prepared as we possibly can, and we believe that we're at that point now, and go in um, to the event as confident as you can, and then let, um, you know, let the, all the practices and all the, you know, habits that we formed over the course of four years to lead our way into, into playing these games, and like I said, if you, if you put the trials up on a pedestal, it's very easy to get distracted with how, you know, big of a prize there is at the end of it. Now, obviously, your team had a good plan four years ago when you arrived at the trials, but did you learn anything in Winnipeg that led your team to make changes in your preparation for this year's trials, whether it's getting more rest, limiting media, focusing more on technical rather than mental, or vice versa? You know, I think the majority of teams, just like in the the trials in Winnipeg, the majority of the teams that are playing in the event have the ability to go on and win. What, What you do to prepare for those prepare for those events is everyone you know own interpretation of what it takes um what the ones the things that we've learned four years ago and what we took going into the trials as the underdog is completely different than what we're bringing into it this time we're a matured team um you know we're probably one of the longer lasting teams that are on tour and you know we're we're four best buddies that are going into it trying to compete for one another and trying to compete for our team as best as possible there's no there's no secret or recipe on how to win a how to win an olympic trials once you get into it you need to be adaptable 
Um, you need to be as skilled as possible on the technical side of it, the mental side of it, and adapt uh, with the changing scope of what what the trials bring you. And if you know you get very very high percentage um, shooting from you know four players on every team, so you have to combat that with you know your own skill level. So the technical side of it's very hard, but the where the um, mental side of it is, in my opinion, um, as much as people attempt to train that into themselves, that has to be inherited down. You have to have that inside of you before you even step on the ice. Um, you can practice it and you can train it, but to be able to compete in the grandest scale um, when the pressure hits you the most, there's there's only so many few people who can do that um, on a regular basis, and it's, it's a very difficult thing to do, and I'm not saying that our team has the capability of doing that every time we step on the ice. It's just it has to be something that we've trained hard for and I think that that's one thing that we're bringing into this is we are our team's going in very mentally strong hopefully that's going to be able to uh, you know again harbor the results that we're looking for one of the defining moments of the last Olympic trials was a shot made by Brad on the last rock versus team Martin in the round robin where he made his now famous walk back down the sheet yelling come on and encouraging the crowd to cheer louder you were there what were you thinking when he was doing that because it's certainly not something you see very much in curling man I was just when, when Brad made that shot, I was just so happy that it, I had to call sweeping the entire time because <laughs> I didn't want to be the one who effed that up. But no, it, it was it was a surreal moment. You know, we like I said, we're pretty fiery guys, and you know, you, we talked about doing things like that. Every every curler has, and what they would do when they, you know, if they make a big shot to win. And good on Brad that uh, it wasn't all talk. He he pumped up the crowd, and you know, I think that was the defining moment for us because it was sort of our stepping stone into the fact that we were. You know, we were there to win that event, and you know, it's for me. I was just, I was just riding his coattails, like did the celebration. So for the rest of us, we were just kind of, uh, just kind of trying to back him up with it because we were pretty excited ourselves. You just mentioned the fact that your team all have fiery personalities on Team Jacobs. Uh, typically, the elite teams try to create a quote-unquote yin and yang situation where the skip and third have complementary personalities to create a balance. How have you and Brad, two fairly intense personalities, been able to make it work for so long? We want to win. That's all it comes down to as a team. We have four four fiery personalities on our team, and um, we want to win. Parked our egos at the door, and that's the biggest key for our team is you know the respect factor. Every one of our members has to respect one another um, and the way we treat one another. And as far as um, how nuts you want to go on the ice, that's that's your prerogative. We're going to back you up and support however you want to be, but as long as the respect uh, the respect is there for one another, there we have no issues with it. So we are we are 100% part of the team, and, you know, we're boys to the end, so it's pretty easy when you, you know, a guy like Brad, someone who I have such massive respect for, it's, I, I don't have to worry about him, you know, looking, uh, looking at me the other way if I'm in a shitty mood or, you know, going a little mental one day uh, over some calls because he's uh, he'll do the same. And but I also know that he respects me, and we have each other's back. And that goes for Ryan and EJ as well. You've been the reigning Olympic champions for just about four years now. What has been the coolest thing that your Olympic medal has allowed you to do or experience off the ice? Oh, that's that's such a hard question. Um, for it, it's it can't be narrowed down to one thing. Being an Olympic champion for me personally was just it gave me a sense of accomplishment in something that I've spent my whole life working towards. So as far as narrowing it down to a specific, you know, 
celebration or that it, it's very hard to do um you know the friends that we were able to walk away from with that and the how much of a friendship it solidified our team having for me is the best thing that could have come of it knowing that you accomplished something with uh, three of your best buddies was the best thing for me um and it's something that you know we really hope that we can achieve again together and finally ryan my last question for everyone has been what it would mean for them to win in ottawa and represent canada and korea you've done it before how much would it mean for you to go back and get a chance to defend your gold medal in pyeongchang uh, it would mean a ton. Um, you know, we've it's it's the end game of what you've been working four years for. So there's only one team that created the right recipe and and is able to say that they're you know the best team in Canada at that given moment. And that's what we want. I want to be able to look at my you know fellow competitors and know that you know the effort and the work that we put in in the four years speaks for itself. And we know that going into the Olympics that we're going to be the best representative for Canada. And that's, that's what winning the um, Olympic trials for me is all about. To something like the Olympics, where there is so much pressure, knowing that you're one of the best teams in the world because you're one of the best teams in Canada, if not the best team in Canada. As the Olympic representative for Canada, um, you know, wears a pretty massive target. And it gives you the confidence to go there and, and compete for it when you know that you were able to outdo your competitors within the country. And that does it for episode 17 of the From the Hack podcast. Next week will be a little bit different for the From the Hack crew as we will be on site at the Olympic trials in Ottawa. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook as we will be posting regular reports, interviews with players and coaches, as well as a daily wrap-up with different guests from the Canadian curling community. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.